Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Uh, today, we're going to be talking about more escalation against Iran. We're going to be talking about the border dispute, uh, a lot about the border dispute, and we're going to talk a little bit about the farmers' protests. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. So we have Lloyd Austin saying that he should have told Biden about his cancer diagnosis. Uh, sure. Now, at first, I'm like, well, duh, of course you should have told him. He's your your commanding officer, isn't he? And then I'm like, well, then again, it is Biden, you know. And then in this, and then I, I don't fault him as much. But there is a, a chain of command here, and you know, you probably it should it was important to probably mention that to someone to someone because you're you're the national defense secretary you're the secretary of national defense you can't just fall off the face of the earth (laughs) but i'll digress yes i i suppose he should have told biden about this um but you know hindsight is 2020 and we'll just uh, move forward then we have king charles and i found this out today uh, King Charles III of the UK, why'd I say it like that? The UK, uh, he has been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, damn, he just got in. He he just got in, and now, oh, he has cancer. It's like, well, okay. So how much long? How, so how much time has he got? Like, the other queen, <laughs> she was in there for decades. The, the, the second longest reign uh, in UK history. What, second only to who, Victoria? Queen Victoria, they had a whole age named after her. <laughs> uh, I guess he's, yes, he's not going to be in there for as long. Well, we don't know that. We don't know that because he has cancer, but he might live a good while. You know, there's always that possibility. He is pretty old, but there's a probability. Uh, although this does decrease the chances of that. You know, cancer is very much a bitch, so. That is pretty important news regarding world leaders here. Uh, yeah. That was unexpected. I'll admit, that was very unexpected. Um, we have Biden planning sanctions against Israel, of all places, <laughs> over, <clears throat> over terrorism, violence, intimidation, and property damage committed against civilians of the West Bank. Wow. I didn't expect sound policy to come out of this guy. Now, will these sanctions actually be levied? No, they won't, unfortunately. <laughs> but, you know, it is a step in the right direction. If you're going to sanction anybody, sanction someone who's actually doing something shitty. Now, me personally, uh, long-time listeners of the show already know where I stand on sanctions. And it's I don't like sanctions. I, I don't think... We, we, sh- we shouldn't be trying to cancel other people just because they do things we don't like. I suppose one could make an exception for genocide, but overall, I just don't think that's a game. That sanctions is a game that we should be playing. Because, uh, after all, when you sanction someone, you're not really hurting the government of that country. You're 
deliberately targeting the people of that country. You're trying to make their life harder. And, and that's what sanctions does. It doesn't over sanctions does not overthrow a government. It makes it impossible for people to live when the sanctions are effective. It makes it impossible for regular people to live, which is tantamount to um, collective punishment. And that's what sanctions are, which is, you know, another reason and the list of reasons why I don't like sanctions. But that uh, on top of the fact that they never work, we sanction all these countries and then they just find new ways to go about their business uh, so that such that they are less and less and less impacted by the sanctions. It's a, it's a one trick pony that doesn't do anything after the first time you use it. Like, it's just not only is it an, an ineffective tool and a vastly overrated tool at that, but it's not a good tool. And all it does is isolate us. Like, sure, I'm an adherent of the one true ideology, isolationism or sovereignism, which I believe is a, a better way of putting where I stand on the issue, but uh, shit, isolationism still gets at the core of my beliefs. I may be an adherent of the one true ideology, but I believe in trade with everyone in alliance with no one. And you can't trade with someone that you're sanctioning. Like they have no incentive to do more trade with you if you're sanctioning them and trying to cripple their economy. Stop, stop doing that. Uh, we don't approve of cancel culture in the United States. So why would we approve of using cancel culture as a foreign policy? Cancel culture doesn't help in in our own country, in our own political discourse. How is it going to help on the international stage? All, all you're going to do is drive them away from you, and they're going to go find new places where they can interact with people normally, and they're going to get away from you, So that, again, so that the sanctions don't have the same effect. And they're not going to come back because they don't want to get sanctioned again. They, they don't want to have to go through this process. You see it with Iran. You see it with North Korea. You see it with Russia. We haven't even bothered to try with China because we know it's going to be a failure. No, no one's going to enforce it. It's, I, I'll digress. Sanctions are a very, very worthless tool, and we shouldn't be so hyper-reliant on them. In place, especially in place of talking with people that we disagree with internationally. Because that's what it's always used for. It's always used as a sort of crutch to avoid actually having to speak with other countries as equals, it's like, no, we don't like you, so we're going to try to cripple your economy, and then we can negotiate from a position of strength where you do everything we say and you get nothing in return. It's like, well, okay, that's immature, that's not productive, and it's no wonder why no one wants to do business with you. I digress. I digress. I just really don't like sanctions. But of all the countries you could have sanctioned, I suppose Israel, while it's in the process of committing a genocide in Gaza, is a pretty good pick pretty darn good pick uh, but again is this actually gonna be enforced no but damn does it does is that uh was that not on the bingo card that was not on the bingo card for 2024 um but it also does highlight the lack of a real cohesive policy in this region right the lack of not just the lack of a policy but the lack of unity within the, the political faction that makes up the Democrats. Because there's the let's not be anti-Semites faction, which is the majority, and then there's the from the river to the sea <laughs> faction. Uh, that That's an exaggeration. It's more so we, because I, I broke this down early on in the war, because there, there's like two set different sets of conditioning that are now coming into conflict right now. There's the, the old conditioning, which says that the Jews are basically a, a sacred cow 
because of the Holocaust, you're not allowed to say anything about negative about the Jews. You're not allowed. To, you're not even allowed to say that. You're not allowed to be critical. You're you're supposed to stand up for the Jews. You're supposed to be against anti-Semitism and all that, right? That's that's the first set of conditioning. The second set of conditioning, which is the newer set, is that anybody who is a is is this view of everything as oppressors and oppressed, right? And if someone is oppressed, they are automatically the good guy, and the oppressor is automatically the bad guy. So you're always supposed to take the side of the oppressed, even if the oppressed isn't actually as oppressed as they say they are. But that you know that's the second set of conditioning. You see this with the the victim mentality types who always want to make everything out to be the world is against me, the world is against black people, the world is against my race. Oh, oh you did that because I'm this race. You know the, the people who cry a lot, <laughs> but. <laughs> But you get these two different sets of conditionings where the Jews can do no wrong and we always side with the underdog. We always side with the victim when we witness a victim and abuser relationship, right? Now you get Israel, the, the nation specifically for the Jews. You have Israel except they are not the victim this time around. They are the oppressor and the Palestinians are the oppressed. Now, what all, now uh, along with that second set of conditioning, there's, a, there's a, a racial undertone there where white people are, are the bad people and uh, anybody who is the colored folk, the, the you know, people of color, which is just a, a new branded way of saying colored folk, the colored folk can do no wrong and the white people are evil. Well, if you look at the Israeli and you compare them to the Palestinian, well, one of them, the Israeli looks like the white guy and the Palestinian looks like <coughs> the the colored folk. <coughs> so you get these these this triple layer of conditioning. Two of them go together and one of them doesn't. The white people always oppress the colored folk. That conditioning overlaps with oppressor side you you always side with the oppressed against the oppressor. That conditioning though those go together. But because the oppressor is Israel, the third conditioning, the old conditioning that says that Israel can do no wrong, you don't criticize the Jews, don't say anything negative about the Jews, the Jews are the protected class, the Jews are the, the, the sacred cow, that conflicts now. Because now it's never again, remember the Holocaust, 6 million Jews, never again, but wait a minute, 9-11, war on terror, never again, hello. Which never again do we go with? And that's the divide going on in the Democrats, uh, in, within the factions that make up the Democratic Party right now. And so what you're also witnessing with this, uh, uh, him planning to sanction Israel, is him caving to the people who have gone along with the, the, the newer sets of conditioning, which says that we always side with the oppressed in an oppressor-oppressed relationship, everything and everything has to be viewed in terms of oppressor and oppressed relationships. Nothing can be mutual or, or you know consensual. It's always who's oppressing who, and we should always side with the victim. And as well as you know, white people are bad, colorful good. He this bill, well not this bill, this new sanctions idea because it hasn't been enforced, is him caving to the people who are stuck in that conditioning who have broken ranks with the old school Democrats who still go along with the old conditioning. 
the the Jews are the sacred cow conditioning. And these conditionings are coming into conflict right now. Never again the Holocaust is running hard up against never again the war on terror. And it's just not mixing. And now you get this, because remember when the war started, he went and gave a blank check to Israel saying, we're going to stand with you no matter what. Uh, re very reminiscent of Ukraine, except he went there in person to, to give the blank check to uh, Netanyahu. And now here he is saying he's going to sanction Israel over Palestine. A after forcing all of our allies not to be able to say the word ceasefire when referring to Gaza. It's crazy. But it demonstrates just how broken the political factions in America are. In this, this specific case, we zoom in on the Democrats. But make no mistake, the political factions in America are broken as a whole. And the, the discussion slash debate slash disagreement on the right is of a different nature. It's of a foreign aid versus domestic policy type dispute. So it's a different category. But the political factions in America are broken right now such is the case with the american revolution and that's why and that's one of the reasons why i keep calling this the the second american revolution it is very very entertaining to watch but i digress i digress moving on the biden administration has also initiated airstrikes against militias in iraq and syria in response to the attack in jordan that killed three u.s soldiers and injured 32 more he we've also started uh firing rockets like crazy at <clears throat> you know the houthis as if that was going to do anything but yeah we can we're very much on the slip and slide to war and we are slipping and we are sliding uh although that's very intentional it's very very intentional which is why i keep bringing up all these little events to paint the picture for you of what they're trying to get us to and now as we get closer to that you can see what a, what i've been trying to uh, you know lay out to you right uh we, we have the this talk in line with this escalation we have talk of attacking iranian naval vessels which is also being discussed and i saw this i saw very briefly this interview with nikki haley where they were at she where they were asking her what, what should we do about all these strikes on our soldiers and she's like we have to respond you have to respond with force you you, have, you you the iranian the iranian navy you gotta strike them you gotta hit them you gotta hit them hard and it's and, and then and then one of the interview one of the i think this was a cnn interview and one of the people doing the interview had enough common sense to do the follow the, the logical follow-up question to that which is wouldn't that does that include starting a war with iran because that's what's going to happen if you just go bomb the iranian navy you know all, all these warmongers and these imperialists in our they just love talking about bombing people and they don't consider wait a second if i bomb someone that means i'm at war with them if we bomb iran that means we're at war with iran now Obviously, a lot of them want the war with Iran, but a lot of them don't even think about it that way. They think we can just bomb whoever we want, and they'll never fight a war with us. And and then Nikki Haley over there, she just she just dodges the question. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna hit him. We're gonna hit him hard. And it's like, well, okay, okay, but does that start a war with Iran? Are we starting? Oh, it's like okay, <laughs> but uh, I'll digress. She's not the president, so we don't have we don't really care what she said. <laughs> but moving on. Moving on. Uh, rumor has it, because Tucker Carlson is in Russia right now, the rumor is that he's gunning for a juicy interview with Vladimir Putin, which if true, and I hope it's true, it would break the net. It's going to break the net. T 100 million views overnight. I, I can guarantee it. <laughs> and I will watch it 
and I will break it down on this podcast. Uh, it, it'll be it'll be very very good for me if he gets this interview because then I can watch the interview and I can report it back to you, and you know we get to talk about it. But he is in Russia. Will he get the interview with Putin? We don't know. It could be that he gets an interview with Sergey Lavrov. I know, uh, but uh, look, I don't have anything against Lavrov. I actually have a pretty decent opinion of Lavrov. Very competent. But let's be honest. We want the Putin interview. <laughs> and hopefully we can get it. Maybe we'll get both. Who knows? Maybe maybe we'll get someone who... Maybe we'll get a Dmitry Medvedev interview. That'll be that'll be wild to listen to. Because that, that guy always takes the hard line on every foreign policy issue for Russia. He He's like a neocon, except he actually gives a damn about Russia. Because <laughs> we know... We know the neocons don't really care about America. They just they just want to fight a war, right? He he's saying, yeah, this is a problem for our country. Here's why, and here's how fighting a war, here's how taking the hardest line possible is going to be beneficial towards us. That that's where that guy goes. A little crazy, but you know, uh, crazy that's potentially good for the country. Uh, <laughs> but alas, we will see the results of this visit to Russia. This this uh. This delegation, this delegation, he was taking this, do I call it a pilgrimage? No, no, that's the wrong word. There's a, there's, there's a word I'm looking for. I just can't fish it out of my mind right now. But alas, I hope something juicy comes out of this. I, and I hope it is the, the Vladimir Putin interview, but it might not be. So I don't want to get my hopes up too much, but I can't help it. Uh, speaking of Putin, Putin is planning on expanding the demilitarization, the demilitarization zone uh, in, in reference to Ukraine. And this is sort of confirming that Russia is going to take more land from Ukraine. Because the only way you can expand the demilitarization zone, he, he's not going to expand it into Russia. No, he's going to expand it into Ukraine. And the only way that happens is if you take more Ukrainian territory, which confirms what we've speculated on basically the entire war, which is that Russia's going to move further west. Like the borders, where the, the, the lines are right now was never where this conflict was going to end. You have a lot of people who talk about this frozen conflict. It's going to be like Korea. These people don't know what they're talking about. I know that sounds pretentious, like, uh, oh, I know what I'm talking about, but they don't. It's, no, it's it's more of a, well, that's, I'll be honest, that's kind of what I'm saying, but I, I believe I have good merit to say it that way. These people fundamentally underestimate Russia to the point of, well, in my words, retardation, right? They underestimate Russia to the point of being retarded. They don't they don't understand that Russian industry is, is uh better than everything the all of nato has like they're outproducing all of nato in every aspect of military production except for planes and that's just because they aren't trying they are producing us in drones now which they weren't doing at the start of the war artillery shells they had that covered tanks they're producing tanks uh, almost as many tanks in a month as we're hoping to build yearly like like it's insane the the level of reindustrialization that russia has reached and how much that is paying dividends for them right now 
And this is something that the people who talk about a frozen conflict don't understand because they still believe that the Russians are giving their all and failing. They believe that the Russians are giving their all in Ukraine and failing and that the Ukrainians are giving their all and they're fighting for it's it's not like that. The Russians are holding back immensely. They've been holding back immensely since the moment they came in. And they never stopped holding back. They've gradually gradually lifted restraints, but we haven't seen all-out war. We haven't seen Russia go all out yet. They have not begun to fight. Meanwhile, Ukraine's been fighting for its life and losing. And that is the dynamic that is not that is just missed by these people who talk about a frozen conflict. We're going to freeze the conflict. We're going to get a ceasefire. We're going to have Ukraine trade land for NATO membership. And they, they don't understand how the conflict started. They don't understand the reasons why Russia invaded. Uh, they, they don't understand why the, the, the things that they believe are plausible are in fact unrealistic. But it's really simple when you understand Russia and Russia's perspective, but they don't want to understand Russia's perspective. And that's that's all it is. It's not an intelligence thing. It's a perspective thing. They don't want to understand Russia's perspective, which is why they're never going to understand why the things they talk about aren't going to work. We've been saying since this war started that the Russians were going to move further west just based off of their stated war aims, demilitarization, denazification. You can't demilitarize Ukraine without taking over more of Ukraine, or at least that's what I thought. I, I suppose you can just sit there and are artillery spamming Ukrainian troops on the, on the, on the border, and, <laughs> and you can kill so many of them that they'll never be able to mount any armed resistance against you ever again for the rest of the century because they don't have the demographic capacity to recoup these losses. And they're not going to for a long, a very long time. Like that, that's the reality. When you live in an era of demographic decline, losses like this, you don't get back. These are, as far as the people alive today are concerned, the men and women whose lives are being lost in Ukraine are irrecoverable losses. Because you're never going to be able to replace that manpower. Not just in, in military terms, but in economic terms. When, when the war is over. What jobs are these people going to be able to work if they're dead? What jobs are these people going to be able to work if their legs are blown off? They're missing an arm and an eye. Or, or they're permanent invalids. There's not enough kids to replace them. It's over. And, and that's... The tr that is just a part of the tragedy of Ukraine, is that when this war is over, there's not going to be a Ukraine. And I'm talking the nation, not the country. There's not going to be a Ukraine to recover from. It's over. So I suppose in that way, you can demilitarize Ukraine without taking over all of Ukraine, but you can't denazify it. And that's the thing. You have to take over more of Ukraine to denazify it because that requires institutional changes, which you would have to have de facto control over Ukraine to do. And Russia has held true to these objectives, these overarching objectives. And because of that, we, well, the only way you can do that is if you at least take Kiev. At least. And here he goes. Here's Putin talking about expanding the demilitarization zone. 
Russia's going to move further west. It's just, it's not even a matter of time anymore because this is the year when it's going to happen. Ukraine's counteroffensive has been defeated. Ukraine is out of money. They're out of men. They claim to have on paper an army of 800,000 men. We're going we're gonna to find out very, very, very quickly if they're telling the truth. It is February now. We're, what, 20, not even 20 days away from the anniversary of this war. We're going to find out very quickly uh, just how badly the situation has deteriorated in Ukraine. Because that money try, that these people in our Congress are trying to get them with this border bill is not coming. It's not going to go through. It's not going to go through. Well, maybe it will. Maybe we'll have to see what the House does. But the, the House, the majority leader is saying that it's dead on arrival. Meaning all this aid isn't going anywhere for the time being. And by the time it does, uh, it might be too late. Well, not that it would change anything. But the Russians are going to go on the offensive this year. Ukraine is out of They're running out of ammunition as we speak. And like they've always been running out of ammunition. It's just that we keep we kept you know reinfusing them with large supplies of ammunition dumps. That ammunition dump isn't coming this time, which means that this time when they run out, they will really really run out, and they won't even be able to fight back. It's over. It's over, and we're gonna see it in a big way, probably come spring, summer of this year, which is not that far away. We're in February now. You give it three months, you give it three months, and we're gonna be, we're gonna be, we're gonna be able to smell the offensive coming if it hasn't started already by that point in time. We're gonna be able to smell it. But I'll digress. We have President Bukele of El Salvador winning re-election in a landslide guaranteeing that El Salvador will maintain its course, cracking down on criminals and moving towards a, a, a new future, an uncharted path in monetary policy because he, he was big on Bitcoin and he's going to continue to be big on Bitcoin. And we're going to see the effects that that has on El Salvador. And I, I think we're we're watching with people like uh, Bukele, with people like Millet in Argentina and with Trump and perhaps a number of other leaders in other Latin American countries, we're seeing a new world emerge in the new world. So for all this talk of the West this and the West that, I would not bet money on an American future in the West as much as I'd bet on an American future in the new world. That's my two cents. And then last but not least, we I, there was this interesting story uh, regarding the Jack Smith case against Trump, where uh, a woman, Anna Paulina Luna, who was in Congress, she issued a congressional letter inquiring into the Jack Smith case, uh, demanding that he produce evidence as to the legal means by which he was conducting his investigation, because he was doing a number of things that he uh, allegedly didn't have the authority to do by himself, you know, as a prosecutor. And within hours of receiving that congressional notice, the case was dropped. Uh, it, it, de facto drop, not like officially, but like there's no court hearings in DC for the rest of the year. And it's like, okay, so that's over. 
so that's one court case down another to go there's the the fanny willis scandal where she she paid her boyfriend to help her prosecute Trump. <laughs> these people are a joke and i i love watching them fail i love and 2024 is going to be the, the best year ever for, for that so anybody who loves watching these people fail 24 2024 is going to be your year 2024 is my <laughs> 24 is my lucky number and that is remaining true this year as well but alas that's the the rapid fire and we're we're gonna get into the meat of this episode uh in just a minute all right so we're gonna talk a little bit about the farmers protest because i've noticed that this is this is a thing right it's a thing it's been expanding over the course of uh the last few months the farmers protests uh we, we've seen large scale protests taking place in the netherlands which is where it started back in Back in 2020, was it 2021 or 22? I think it was, a, I think it was 22. Because I remember 2022 was the year where all the, definitively, all the, the COVID nonsense died. Late 2021, early 2022 is when all the, the COVID nonsense died definitively. And in, you know, in, as a side note, in um, you know, every now and then I'll just go ranting to myself about things around the world, and and in the fight against COVID authoritarianism, I, I took note of the fact that one, we fought that fight with half of our country, because we had a, we were a country that had a stroke, because the entire left side of our body was paralyzed and actively working against us, you know. But not only did we fight that struggle, our end of that struggle, because we had Russia and China as partners in the struggle against globalist authoritarianism, because that, that was the big push, right? That was supposed to be the defining event that ushered in the Great Reset, that ushered in the the Agenda 25, Agenda 2030, or whatever the hell it was, uh, ushered in this, this new age, this new dark age of authoritarianism, and neo-feudalism that was supposed to be the thing that did it we were supposed to be sitting there under lockdowns for years and years and years we were supposed to have global famines because they weren't going to allow the farmers and the ranchers to produce food if you remember all those stories about them cracking down on farmers and how they, they weren't allowed to raise their cattle they weren't allowed to do this they weren't allowed to do that they, they had to cull their herds and this was uh they went really overboard with the the whole um cracking down on farmers in europe which is part of the reason how which is part of the reason why you see the, these protests today because they they never stopped right they stopped in america uh to a greater extent than they did in europe but they never really stopped trying to make and force farmers and ranchers to stop producing food because that was the, the the primary aim right these people wanted to kill billions like we we talk you know, uh, rather cheekily, if I might add, we we talk uh, tongue in cheek about how evil the, the the World Economic Forum is and how the the Davos types just they hate you that they're, they're anti-humanist. But I don't think we really understand. Uh, I don't think it's really set in just how evil these people were. Like, think about what a forced famine like that would do you'd kill billions just through starvation billions would there be they were going they were going to make hitler stalin and mao look like saints 
because they were going to kill billions through starvation. And think about how are you going to get people to eat bugs if they have every other alternative? How are you going to get people to eat these these plant-based alternatives, which you weren't even going to be able to eat because they weren't going to let the farmers grow it? How are you going to do all these things? How are you going to get them to eat bugs if they can eat meat, reg, real meat? How are you going to get them to eat bugs if they can eat a, a protein? <laughs> Not a protein. If they can eat a, a plant-based burger. and <laughs> You can't unless you starve them out. And that was the goal. They, were, they wanted to starve us out and then say, here, here's some bugs. Now eat, peasant. Like they, This is really what they tried to do. They, they were really going for that. They were going to kill billions through starvation because a lot of parts of the world are food insecure and dependent on places like America, Europe, Russia, and parts of Southeast Asia and you know South America to produce food. The breadbaskets of the world. By forcing the breadbaskets to shut down and specifically cracking down on the farmers and the ranchers to cut off the ability to produce food, you starve out everybody, all the net importers of food. That's a that's billions of people. That's billions of people who you we suddenly don't have the capacity to feed just by cracking down on farmers. And then they, this was supposed the lockdowns, mind you, were supposed to go on for years. Remember how they were how they were telling us how it was gonna take years to develop a vaccine? It's gonna take years to develop a vaccine. Years, 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 years. We're, we're gonna, we're gonna, it's gonna take years to develop a vaccine. Then it's gonna take years for the vaccine to roll out. It's gonna be a new normal. We're gonna have to adapt to a new normal. Masks, bumping elbows. It's the new normal, remember that? Seems like a, a million years ago, because 2020 was such a long year. But I'm sure you remember now, they wanted this. This is what they wanted. They were gonna starve you out for five, six, seven, eight years. And then at the very end of the, the crisis that they manufactured, they'd be like, look, it's, we're saved. The vaccines are finally here. So and now everyone can just get their shot. And then, and then this can finally be over. We can go back to normal. Remember that? Let's get back to normal. Because that, that was the narrative they ran with when the vaccines were out, which they weren't intending to be out so early. Let's get back to normal. Take your shot. Let's get back to normal. Take the shot. Let's get back to normal. You're going to lose your job if you don't take it. Take take the shot. Take the shot. We'll give you a free burger if you'll take the shot. Take take the shot. Come on. We'll we'll do drive-through inoculations. Come on. Come on. Do the drive-through. Free co- free. We're going to make it free. Free, please. <laughs> Remember how desperate they were to get you to take the shot? Just so it can sabotage your immune system? Just so it can make you sick over and over and over again to the same virus that it's supposedly it's supposed to make you immune to? All these repeat cases of COVID, I, I'll be honest, I had never heard of a breakthrough case until COVID. I never heard of breakthrough cases. I heard of vaccine equals immunity. That's what I was taught. I was taught if you get, if you catch a virus and you live, you have natural immunity. They tried to tell us the natural immunity didn't exist. Now take your shot. They, they tried to tell us that a single shot of a vaccine isn't what isn't enough. You need two. Then you need three, then you need four, and now you need yearly. It's like, wait, hold on, hold on. That's not how this works. And they were gonna they were gonna lead us down that path until they had sabotaged our immune system to such a degree that we would always be sick. 
now health becomes a subscription service. Now, some people say health already is a subscription service. No, 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 no. Health, not not uh, treating a virus, treating an ailment. No, you're always going to be ailed. Everyone is always going to have an ailment because their immune system is so weak. The common cold goes back to being a lethal killer now. And if you want to live, you you got to pay your subscription fee. You you want your you want your immune system to function properly. Here's this here's this uh this 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 pill. Now pay up subscription fee, a subscription fee for your immune system to function properly. Because they sabotaged. Like the, uh, and I'll get back to the farmers. This is slightly relevant to the farmers, but but this is what they wanted. This is what they wanted. And they really showed their ass in 2020. And it, and and when I was really thinking about what these people wanted for us, and I thought about the struggle for freedom, because it was a struggle, right? I thought about, hmm, we fought our end of that struggle, we being America, with the left side of our body paralyzed, because the left was uh, terminally ignorant the entire way through. It, we had to fight ourselves to, to, to do this. And... Then I thought about, because, you know, there's people who love talking about the West this and the West that, and the West has all these values, uh, the West. And I'm like, well, okay, who in the West, because people also love talking about America's allies and how important our allies are for us. Allies, allies, allies. But when you think about it, the, the COVID crisis, the manufactured crisis, and the attempt at imposing global governance on us all was the first legitimate threat to U.S. sovereignty in over a hundred years, since the War of 1812, really. Well, since 1860, because uh, the Civil War. But shit, a hundred and sixty years. The first legitimate threat to our sovereignty in a hundred and sixty years. And where were our allies in the fight against, in, in that struggle? in the fight against this global tyranny? Where, where were our allies? Who were our allies, as a matter of fact? Russia, China, well, those are some unlikely faces because they were fighting against the same tyranny. Notice how their vaccines don't have all these problems and how they got their vaccines out extra fast? The Russians had theirs out the fastest. Okay, so so they're, they're, they were on our side in that struggle whatever you may believe about them, they at least weren't your enemy in fighting against that crisis. People say the virus came out of China. Well, we made the virus. So who's really to blame? So Russia and China were on our side. What about, but, but they're not our allies, are they? What about our allies? What were our allies doing? And when you look at the list of our allies and you see that the help we had against in the fight against the tyranny, you can count the, the help we had on one hand. We had the Canadian truckers who sort of uh, instigated, who uh, not instigated, inspired, inspired a, a trucker convoy protest in America. Because remember, when, when that trucker convoy made its way to D.C., before they even got to D.C., D.C. undid the COVID restrictions and all that shit immediately, right? Our, our, and the Canadians sort of led the charge on that against their own government and they got cracked down on hard but they still won in the end then our convoy 
went through. They didn't even make it to DC yet, and DC undid the, the policy. So we had the Canadian truckers, all right. We had the Dutch farmers, because the farmers in, in the Netherlands they revolted. And that's it. That was it. All these supposed allies that we have, and the only help we had in a in the first legit in fighting the first legitimate danger to our sovereignty since the Civil War. The only help we had from our allies were the Canadian truckers and the Dutch farmers. And I'm like, wow. It, wow. It, that's all. I was just dumbfounded when I when I came to that realization. So that, that's. And look, and and since then, it's just been the three of us carrying the fight because the fight still technically isn't over. Look at the truckers now. We're they're they're going down to the border in America. The truckers in Canada are still fighting against the, the draconian things that were done to them in Canada. They're fighting legal battles against their government because what they did was illegal. And the Dutch farmers, I finally come full circle here. The Dutch farmers have inspired mass protest across all of Europe. Across all of Europe. No one's calling them conspiracy nuts. No one's calling them, no one's saying that they want to kill grandma. No one's saying any of that anymore. Now people are standing with the farmers. People are standing with the Canadian truckers. The, the U.S. convoy has 25 states behind it now over the, the Texas border issue. There's 700,000 trucks on their way to Texas right now. Factions, not even whole countries, because it was, it, it was half of America, barely. That not even half of Canada and not even half of the Netherlands who stood up to this, this creeping authoritarian, this wholesale assault on the concept of freedoms and rights in the West. Three entities inside of three countries and that was it. And we're still carrying the rest of the West on our back. We're still carrying. Particularly the Dutch farmers, oh my God. There wouldn't be these, these mass protests across Europe if it wasn't for the Dutch farmers. And, and what are they protesting? Remember what I said about how these people, these all this this cracking down on the food producers and how they didn't let up in Europe as much as they let up in America. Well, you combine combine that with the the green policy cuz that was sort of the the case the justification for it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The the green we need to move to net zero. We need net zero, no carbon. We're going to get to net zero emissions. And the way they planned on doing that was not by not flying in private jets around the world. No, 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 no. They wanted to cut down on you. You're the carbon they wanted to, to reduce. They said the cow farts are producing too much carbon and methane in the atmosphere. 
and we have to cut down on that. So you have to kill half your herd uh, or else, which uh, you, if you are ideologically in line with this idea, then you might think that's a good idea. But you have to understand that financially, asking a, a farmer or a rancher to kill half their herd is tantamount to asking them to commit financial suicide. Telling workers in France who have to commute to work because the cities are too expensive. And this is how the, the, the Yellowvis protests in France broke out like uh, years ago. Telling workers in France that they have to pay more in gas because we have to get to net zero emissions when they all have to commute uh, 40 an, an hour to work or more. Well, that's financially problematic. And, and this is the problem with the green policies. It's always a financial hit to people. It's never, there's never a clearly defined benefit. It's always an ideological and a, a romanticized benefit of you're going to save the planet. It's like, well, okay, well, how do I feel the impact of that myself? Because at a certain point, you have to be able to feel it in order to, to get mass buy into it. And that's just, you know, words to the wise, for the wise who of people who do believe in the climate crisis, you have to find a way to incentivize people to go along with it. Because they have to fight themselves and their own financial uh, well being, they're not going to do it. But these people, they wanted to crack down on farmers, they want to crack down on the food producers. And they, they were still trying to do that with through various uh, green policies that we're going to do taxes on this, taxes on that, taxes on this, fees for this and fees for that. And they just wouldn't let up on these farmers. And again, asking them to commit financial suicide for the sake of an ideal that had no clearly defined benefit to them. Because if it had a clearly defined benefit to the farmers, I don't think they would have had much of an issue going along with this. Right? Some of them may have, but I, I don't think if, if it was financially a sound for them to do it, that they would be so up in arms, but it's not. You're asking them to commit financial suicide. You're asking everyone to commit financial suicide while you fly around in a private jet. And at a certain point, <coughs> the farmers rose up and said enough. They rose up and said enough. They stopped. They said, you don't want us to produce food? Fine. We're just not going to send it to the grocery store. Oops. So now all of the people who vote for this get to feel the impact of this. There's no, there's nothing on my, on my shelves. Why is there no food? Which is what they would be asking if, if these, these globalists got their way, where's the food? <laughs> well, uh, we don't have any food. Um, here's a side of bugs. That's, that's what they're going to do. But because the Dutch farmers stood up, to all this draconian nonsense, this green lunacy, because they stood up in the face of you know the overreach, the the overask, the, the the straw that broke the camel's back, which was again asking them to commit financial suicide in the middle of lockdown policy. They said no, and their revolt, because it is based on issues that workers. And the working class, uh, let, me, uh, let me get a little socialist for you, the, that the working class and workers all across the continent are feeling because the EU, this supranational institution, has been imposing 
and artificially creating these problems for every worker in Europe. Because the Dutch revolt was based on these problems that are shared from country to country to country, the second the Dutch succeeded in revolting, the second the Dutch found a way to, to you know, stick it to the people making their lives miserable, you know, giving them a taste of their own medicine and even taking a, a landslide victory in their own country with the election of Kurt Wilders, who, who was from the Dutch Farmers Party. It, it was almost natural that reciprocal protests were going to break out across the rest of Europe. And they have. You have large-scale protests in the Netherlands, which is where this started, in Germany, Belgium, Poland, France, Lithuania, Greece, Romania, and Italy. And why all these different countries in different corners, because I've just named to you every corner of Europe, basically. Why are they all protesting the same thing? It's because the EU and these other European governments, I'm pretty sure all of them are in the EU, but just you know to cover my ass here, <laughs> Other European, well, Britain as well, but I, I don't think we've seen to the same extent these types of protests in Britain, but they would be in the same uh, pot here. All these governments have been through these policies imposing problems on the working class that did not exist before. And again, in pursuit of an ideal that offers no material and you know tangible benefit to the people who are being harmed by these policies and you just stack them one after another after another after another and you now that you have one revolt you're going to get every revolt because why would other people stand by and watch as one group of people freeze themselves from the exact same tyranny when they could copy paste the method and free themselves we're seeing uh, should we call it a revolution in Europe? Should we call it a revolution? Perhaps we can. A, a peaceful revolution, which is the nature of these revolutions we're watching in 2024. A peaceful revolution, a political revolution, if you will. Where they are revolting against these policies which have been the status quo in Europe for decades. For decades, because remember, Europe is supposed to be ahead of us in terms of implementing all these policies all these green, they're ahead of us. And then slowly the, the policy sort of trickles into America and people are people who advocate for this say, look at the Europeans there. They have this policy, this policy and that policy. We should do that here. And you get the political pressure in America. They're ahead of us in terms of these policies. So the damage is much more advanced in these countries. But with them revolting, that's overturning decades of established domestic policy. And on the other side of this wave of peaceful political revolutions, because for the most part, it's going to be peaceful. I won't say that all of them are going to be peaceful. We don't, we don't know that. But on the other side of these political revolutions happening in Europe, you're going to see people turn to coal, oil, natural gas, and nuclear, as they should. Because these are real power sources that can, that can really power a society. And it all started with the Dutch. It all started with the Dutch. 
why do the governors in America feel have the balls to stand up to Biden? It's because, well, they they learned to stand up for themselves during the COVID crisis. Remember how it was the red states who just undid the lockdowns? South Dakota never even locked down. Florida undid the lockdown. Texas undid the lockdown. And they all learned to just, you know, disobey that. They learned to stand up for themselves. And now that's carrying over to the fight for our border and for our sovereignty. And now you have the Canadian truckers who their government overreached against them. The Supreme Court in Canada ruled against everything that Trudeau did to these truckers, debanking them, throwing them in jail, for no, arresting them for no reason. And now they have legal uh, recompense that they can get out of the government. And they're suing the government. None of this happens without the rebellion of America, the, the American right, Canadian truckers, and Dutch farmers. If we're looking purely in the context of the West and who's really fighting for, for these supposedly Western values, I would say American values, but if we're going to call them Western values of freedom and liberty, it was us three. And the Dutch are carrying all of Europe on their fucking back. So good on the Dutch and good on all these people and all these workers, because it's not just the farmers who are protesting. Numbers of other uh, uh, worker groups and worker unions have sided with the Dutch, uh, no, not the Dutch, with the farmers in their respective countries, and they are holding reciprocal uh, protests in solidarity with them in their own, own set of ways. Good, good on them. Good. It's about time. It's about time. The peaceful revolution to for common sense is what we are witnessing all across Europe. And we'll watch and see how it goes. We will watch and see. But now, now we're going to talk briefly about the escalation against Iran. Uh, we've been talking about it uh, since the, the war in Gaza began. Uh, I say the war in Gaza began. Look at me. I'm falling in line with them because they keep saying that the war started. But, you know, the war did not start. But this round of fighting, you know, I have to keep pounding that into my head or else I'll go along with the, the talking. Oh, the, the, this started on October the 7th. No, 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 no. This round of fighting started on October the 7th, but I digress. We've been watching the escalation towards war with Iran since this round of fighting between Israel and Palestine began. So I will not bore you too much with the escalation against Iran. But I do feel it necessary to, you know, cover cover it every week because this is what they're pushing for, right? This is what they're pushing, and they're doing it in real time. So I do feel obligated as a citizen of this country to talk about what our government is trying to get us into. And I'll be talking a lot about our government in the next segment. Oh, boy. But, yes, escalation with Iran. You already know the drill. They want a war with Iran. Uh, these people are insane. <laughs> they are not rational people. They are not sane people. They're not well people, if I'm being perfectly honest. <laughs> now, why do I say that? Well, because uh, I, I sort of brought it up in the, the rapid fire of this episode. These people, they, they just want a war with Iran. And you saw it with that, that interview with Nikki Haley. It was like, well, we have to strike them. We have to strike them hard. We have to, okay, even if that means war with Iran, Miss Haley, uh, we, we're going to strike. We're going to hit. We're going to hit. We got to hit them and we got to hit them hard. And we got to hit them fast. And it's like, well, no, no, hold on, no, hold on, hold on. We sure we can we can hit them hard. We can hit them fast. 
But does that mean starting a war with Iran? It's like, okay. And you saw with all those goofy goobers on stage back during the, 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 the debates. It's like, oh, we're, we're going to do this and that to Iran. We're going to... And then when the war... When the war escalated for the umpteenth time in Gaza back in October 7th, you have these people who took to the took to the airwaves immediately. Lindsey Graham and, of course, Nikki Haley again, you know. Like, we're going to hit Iran. We're going to take Iran out of the oil business. We're going to strike Iran. We're going we're gonna to do this, that, and third to Iran. But it's like, okay, so you're going to start a war with Iran. Uh, it, <laughs> it's like, these people don't think. They just want war. And they don't know why they want war. That's the crazy part. They don't know why they want war. They can't articulate to you why it is that they need to be at war. Now, we can we can piece two and two together and say that money laundering is a part of it. We can say that. But that that's that doesn't go far enough. Money laundering doesn't go far enough to explain the obsession that these people have with war. They and they can't explain it to you either. And that they are not sane. These people are not sane. Uh, they want a war with Iran. But I have sat here and broken down to you, and I, I did it, you know, multiple times last month when I, you know, sat and thought about this and what that means, you know, assessing Iran's role in the conflict accurately as a country trying to contain the conflict, a country with a lot of influence around the region, mind you using that influence to contain the conflict and struggling because every day that the conflict goes on every day that that body count in gaza goes higher it becomes harder and harder for iran to constrain and contain this conflict to just gaza and you can see when the grip slips a new party joins the fight the grip slips uh the hezbollah is firing rockets across the border the grip slips Turkey's justifying war with uh, Israel independently of what anyone else has to say about it. The grip slips, and now the Houthis have a blockade in the Red Sea. Every, it, this is not Iran instigating problems for Israel. It's actually, uh, ironically, the other way around. They've been trying to contain and keep this from escalating. But they can't keep an iron grip over all these people because these are not proxies. The, when we say proxies, understand that, that that does not mean puppets. Iran does not control all these actors and these militias and these countries like puppets. They don't do that. They, they support them financially and militarily, but these people can and will act independently of Iran whenever they want to. They choose to go along with Iran's leadership on the big issues. Which means that on a big issue where the Iranians have a different opinion than with the, the axis of resistance has, Iran cannot keep a solid iron grip over these people. And every time the grip slips, a new party joins the fight. When you assess Iran's role in the conflict accurately, it becomes clear as day to see that starting a war with Iran is actually the last thing we need to be doing. Because they're not the root of the problem, they're actually a part of the solution. Uh, again, I, it, it's insane, the irony here. Iran, the sworn enemy of Israel, is actually helping Israel because Iran doesn't want a regional war. 
none of the, none of the major powers except for Turkey want a regional war. Uh, the, the Turks are always a peculiar case. We've seen the trend of peace taking over the Middle East, peace between Arabia and Iran, peace in Syria as the war winds down and the government in Syria under Assad is finally consolidating power again. Peace with the Abraham Accords. Was that going to leave the, the, the Palestinians hanging in the wind? Of course it was. If we're all being honest, it was. It was it would have been an incomplete piece, but compare compare the contrast. The, the the new piece in the region is going to be one without an Israeli state. So you take your pick. Trump chose Israel, and the Middle East is about to choose Palestine. But we were seeing a wave of peace taking over the Middle East. Arabia was leaving Yemen alone after almost a decade at war. Arabia had switched sides and started backing Assad. Turkey switched sides, started backing Assad. We were seeing peace taking over the Middle East, not just because of Trump, but because of their own local initiatives. The war in Afghanistan is over. Peace was taking over the region, which opens the door to the Belt and Road. Everyone there has an incentive for peace because one, they're tired of fighting all the damn time, and two, uh, the Chinese are knocking at the door, offering them money and infrastructure and development, but the condition is you have to not be killing each other. So they have a, a dual-pronged incentive not to have more war, and they weren't having more war. This war on their doorstep with, with Israel and Gaza is a problem for them, not an op is not an opportunity, at least the governments don't view it that way. It's problematic for them because they don't want war. They want peace so they can have development and economic opportunity. And that's what's been motivating Iran. They've been working in, in, in Israel's interest by working in their own interest, which is for cooperation and economic development, aided and abetted by peace in the Middle East and the Chinese Belt and Road, and of course, cheap Russian energy, which is also coming in. They just got a, the Iranians just got a free trade deal with the Eurasian Economic Union. Iran, their interest is in peace so that they can have economic development and so they can have real security on their border by, because their border isn't a, a failed state. That was their interest. That still is their interest. And in a, this incredible twist of irony, they have been working in Israel's interest by trying to contain the conflict, but they don't have an iron grip. These people in Washington don't understand any of what I've just explained to you. Any of what I've just explained to you, and I just summarized and paraphrased what I've been observing and, and talking about for the past two, three months now. Not a single person in 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 power understands what i have just elaborated to you they think iran is the problem but because iran is actually a part of the solution if you get a war with iran you're going to get a war with the entire middle east and they don't understand that and which is part of the reason why i say they're they're not right in the head and we have this this story this story we have the Kata Kataib Hezbollah, 
which is a, a sort of Hezbollah affiliate in Iraq. They have claimed responsibility <laughs> for the recent drone attack that killed three American soldiers and wounded 32. Do I believe they are actually responsible for this? Uh, I'm not entirely sure because the attack was in Jordan. Uh, although it's possible, it's possible they were. It's possible they were. They claimed the attack, so um, we'll. I suppose I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Although I'm, I'm inclined not to, because you know this is the type of thing that ISIS likes to do, <laughs> where they'll claim uh, responsibility for an attack that you just know for a fact they didn't do. <laughs> but alas, we'll we'll run with this story. They're running with the story. So uh, in in the name of uh, fun in the middle of war. We'll go along with it. They, the, this Kataib Hezbollah, they have also, they've announced, uh, on top of claiming responsibility for this attack, they've also announced that they're suspending military operations against the U.S. And they say that it was to avoid embarrassing the Iraqi government. Like, this, this is literally what, what their leader said. Abu Hussein al-Hamidawi, the leader of this militia, said, quote, we announced the suspension of military and security operations uh, against the occupation forces. He's talking about America and the coalition we have in Iraq. Suspending military and security operations against the occupation forces in order to prevent (laughs) embarrassment to the Iraqi government, end quote. He continues by saying, quote, our brothers in the Axis, and he's referring to the Axis of Resistance, our brothers in the Axis, especially in the Islamic Republic of Iran, they do not know how we conduct our jihad and they often object to the pressure and escalation against the American occupation forces in Iraq and Syria, end quote. And what did I just tell you? What did I just say? That these people can and will act independently of what Iran has to say. He he just spelled it out for you. Our brothers in the Axis, part, especially the Islamic Republic of Iran, do not know how we conduct our jihad, their war, their holy war, against the, the occupiers in their country. Because that's what we are in Iraq. We're occupiers. We're not, they don't view us as liberated. We're occupiers. And that's what we are. He said out his own mouth, they do not know how we conduct our jihad and they often object to the pressure and escalation against the American occupation forces in Iraq and Syria. He specifically mentioned America. He didn't say Britain, Germany, the Netherlands, Canada. No, 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 no. America specifically. He said that Iran objects to and protests our escalation against America. And yet we have we have these light bulbs in the Pentagon and the State Department who sit there and go, yeah, yeah, Iran's the problem, obviously. Oh yeah, these are Iranian proxies. They're acting on behalf of Iran. This guy just told you Iran doesn't like what he does. Who are you going to believe? You don't believe these people who lie to get us into a war? You, you're going to believe the guy who's on the ground. That's for you to decide. 
more and more, I, I lean towards believing <laughs> the other side of this equation. For because for whatever reason, the other side of this equation has a has this nasty habit of telling the truth about themselves. It it's insane. Like you you're telling me the CIA doesn't know this? They don't know everything that this man just said. You tell me the CIA doesn't know everything that I just explained to you? Of course they know. Of course they know. They have to know. But they don't do it. They don't act that way. These people, in spite of knowing far more about this situation than I do, will having access to the information. Because knowing is different from having access to the information. Uh, I'll, I'll give them that. In spite of having access to information, the likes of which would probably make my head explode. They are more ignorant than you and I on this issue. That's crazy. That's crazy. And because of their ignorance, we slip and slide into the pool of war. Oh, brother. But... My goodness, and you, and you have the Biden administration firing rockets at Yemen, like that's good. Like we're gonna stick it to Iran by bombing Yemen, okay? And yet the Red Sea is still closed. These people just want a war, and they don't know why. But so help me, so help me, I pray that they don't they don't get their way. So these people are insane. They don't care about your lives. They don't care about the lives of our soldiers as evidenced by the fact that they keep our troops in places where they're going to get shot at. And they, they want to start a war with Iran while we have all these troops in all these isolated positions throughout the region who are already being attacked by the militias, right? You want to start a conventional war with I Iran on top of being effectively under siege by all these militias around the What's going to happen to all of our forces in these bases in Iraq and in Syria and in Jordan, who no one in America knew we had bases in Jordan? <laughs> Hello, excuse me? <laughs> when did they get there? What happened, uh, again, and they don't think about this, what happens to all of our troops in all these countries when you start the war with Iran? What happens to, what happens to our troops 24 hours later? They're going to get bombed. They're going to get lit the fuck up. And not a single one of these people in Washington have even thought two steps ahead. They just want the war. And they don't know why. And they can't explain to you any of the consequences that are going to come from that. They are not well in the head. We have to watch them. We have to watch them. Like, I, I, I know it probably gets repetitive hearing me talk about this every week. But we have to watch these people. Like, they're, they're going to get us into a war. It's, they're, ugh. They see the writing on the wall, and it does—it does not paint a very good picture for them, and it doesn't paint a picture of them being in power. And they know that not being in power means that a lot of them are going to go to jail. But their last gambit is to get this war with Iran. The Duran talks about it all the time. These people see this as their their shot, their opportunity to finally get this war with Iran that they've been agitating for since the war on terror began. They're—they're they're going all in on this. They're going all in on this. And that's a, a straight up danger to my sovereignty as a nation. So I digress. We'll keep our eyes on this. 
and we'll move on to the next topic. Now, now we get into the big juicy topic of today's episode, which is, of course, the border dispute and the immigration bill, which is what most of this is going to be dedicated towards. But I sort of have both in here. It's a little bit about the border. It's a little bit about the immigration bill. Well, it's a lot about the immigration bill. But let's get into this because I'm I'm loving this story. I'm loving this story. <clears throat> so the border dispute last week texas sort of well not last week but the week before last texas threw down the gauntlet with the federal government and began unilaterally enforcing our southern border at least the parts of the southern border that are texas's southern border uh barring border patrol agents from going into shelby park while erecting a new border wall which is a sort of combination of shipping containers with layers of uh concertina wire which is just a fancy way of saying razor wire <laughs> and and this has gone on for two weeks now 25 other states have pl- essentially pledged to help well they signed a letter of support for Texas and 10 other states have sent their national guards to Texas to help secure the border. And there were threats that the Biden administration was going to federalize the Texas national guard, which probably became politically impossible once the other 10 states uh, pledged to send their own national guards. But there was this ultimatum saying that if Texas didn't allow border patrol in to Shelby park in 24 hours, we're, we're going to, we're going to do this, that, and the third, and then that came and went, and Texas is still at it. <clears throat> Border Patrol still has not been allowed to enter into Shelby Park. Uh, and not that they should. I mean, what are they going to do? C- help traffic people into the country? No. Take your ass on somewhere. Until you're ready to do your job, then get your ass up out of here. <laughs> that, that, that's my two cents. But yeah, you have this rebellion. There, there's talk about how Alaska's National Guard is being sent to help the federal government. But uh, there's a there's a, a time caveat on that because they're not deploying to the southern border until 2025. So if it's this time uh, uh, next year, uh, there's going to be, well, there's highly likely going to be a different administration in office because so, they said they were going to go down there to help the federal government, not to help Texas. But truth be told, that could just be, you know, winking and nodding at the the idea that there's going to be a different person in charge of the federal government and that these two ideas helping texas and helping the federal government uh, might not actually be in conflict by this point next year we'll have to wait and see on that but for the time being uh i don't see the need to hyper obsess about that although i saw the story and there's talk of civil war civil war that the states are going to be fighting each other well alaska isn't going anywhere until 2025 so that's after the election. So I'll digress. But you had 14 governors give a, a joint declaration because they sort of met down in Texas and gave a joint declaration on their right to defend the U.S. border because the central theme of the crisis here is a constitutional crisis. Right? It's an it's an immigration crisis 
And because Texas has put its foot down in trying to stop the immigration crisis, and because the federal government is trying to facilitate the immigration crisis, you have a constitutional you have a constitutional crisis now. Because the federal government and the Supreme Court was right to rule this way, the federal government does have ultimate jurisdiction over the international borders of the United States. That is true. The Constitution also says that Texas and any other state has the right to declare an, an invasion. And Texas is very much being invaded. So Texas, who has the right to declare an invasion, and once you declare an invasion, you have the legal authority, constitutionally, to take actions to defend yourself however you see fit. However, you know, within certain parameters, I mean, I don't think ethnic cleansing is going to be an acceptable protocol. But legally speaking, you know, from a social standpoint, but legally speaking, Texas has the right to basically do whatever the hell it wants in defending its own borders and defending its own sovereignty. Because again, we're a republic and each state has jurisdiction and Texas has legal jurisdiction to defend its juris, has the legal right to defend its jurisdiction. This is the constitution. So because the constitution is the highest law of the land, when the constitution grants two separate powers, the authority to do something in the same sort of area of governance, which in this case is enforcing or not enforcing in the case of the federal government, the border, the Southern border, you get a constitutional crisis because both of them have the legal right to do what they're doing. Uh, the, the federal government does have the legal right to the final say in what happens on the international border, but Texas is being invaded and Texas therefore has the legal right to defend itself. And that's what makes this so interesting from, from the American perspective, not just because Texas is doing the right thing and it's about time that we got this happening and, and not just because you have all these states uh, lining up behind Texas and even sending their own national guard, but it's the constitutional crisis. People are going to have to study this in school. So, you know, uh, let's just give a, a moment of prayer to them. You know, <laughs> that's going to be out. That's going to be on the test in 10 years. So you, you take notes, <laughs> but it adds a new layer of uh, a new layer of intricacy to this that makes it even more interesting and entertaining to watch. Uh, and that and the wall itself is just a spectacle. Like people thought that Trump's wall was extreme. <laughs> people thought people thought that the, the thirty foot wall that that was more like a gate. People thought that was crazy. Yeah, and it, it was painted black so that it gets really really hot because it's the desert, so you can't climb on it without you know climbing equipment which is going to be easy to see but texas said fuck all that we're we're just going to build we're we're just going to line container ships up right next to each other and then layer them we're going to lather them and slather them in razor wire so that only an idiot would try to charge the border and guess what happened guess what happened? greg governor greg abbott of texas has come out publicly saying that the numbers of illegal immigrants crossing Shelby Park specifically, because this is where the, the border wall has been sort of erected and the, the immigrants are trying to go around the wall. <laughs> the, the number of border crossings at Shelby Park has dwindled from an average of around 2,000 a day. 2,000 a day. Just think about that. 
has dwindled from an average of 2,000 a day to three. Three. They built the wall almost overnight, mind you. And we went from 2,000 a day to three at Shelby Park. But hey, but, but walls don't work, am I right? But walls don't work, am I? The, Texas just solved the immigration crisis by itself. Well, they've offered the solution. I'll say that much. They've offered a clear and obvious solution, and that is to build the wall. You can either have Trump's wall or you can have Texas's wall. <laughs> I think I think if given the choice, people will probably choose Trump's wall. Trump's wall looks more humane by comparison. And to be fair, it probably is. Yeah, the Texas wall is the fuck you wall. Trump's wall is the this is our country, stay out. Texas's wall is the fuck around and find out wall. <laughs> that That's the Texas wall, the fuck around and find out wall. <laughs> but isn't that insane? Isn't that insane? 2,000 a day that we were just supposed to live with. Oh, we can't do anything about it. Oh, there, there are asylum seekers. Oh, uh, the, you just you have to let them in. You have to give them health care. You have to give them a job. You have to give them opportunity. They just want opportunity. You have to give it to them. To three. Isn't that insane? We went from having all these conversations and all this talk about amnesty. The only way to deal with this is, through, is to be more lenient in the policy. All that is dead. It's all dead in an instant. And in an instant, just like that, we went from talking about Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan to talking about America. It's all about America now. It's all about America. And it's magnificent. It's magnificent. And what Texas has also demonstrated is just how easily and quickly we could solve problems in America. A, a lot, especially a lot of these big ticket issues, which are so artificially created. How do you, how can you be a, a country with two oceans between you and other countries? You only have two land borders, but you can't get your immigration under control. And, and I love people who, who talk about this with just a complete and total ignorance <clears throat> of American history. It's like, oh, you, you can't patrol the entire border. You can't control the entire border. As if... America has just always had a, a perpetual immigration crisis when you can go back to literally any decade before the 60s and the further back in time you go, uh, the less we have these problems. The second we opened ourselves up to having the problem is when the problem persisted. And the only reason we have this problem is because no one in power really wanted to do anything to stop it. But now we have people in power who are willing to stop it and who are stopping it. It's incredible to see. It's incredible to see. And uh, I made the case last week as to why what Texas is doing is the right thing to do, and it is. But this week, we're going we're gonna to sort of hone in on this immigration bill, shall we? Let's get, let's get into the immigration bill. 
this thing, this clown show has been building for a whole week. Cause like immediately after I dropped the episode, like I, I believe it was that Tuesday after the episode went up, we got word of an, of a, of a bill making its way through the Senate, right? This immigration bill, this border security bill. <laughs> we, we got word. The word on the street was there was a bill making its way through Congress. It's gonna, and it was making the Republicans look bad. <laughs> and it, it, it was claiming to address the border, claiming to address the border crisis. No, I was skeptical, you know, but I approached it with an open mind because I didn't know what was in the bill. But more information came out over the week, and we now know that the bill has $118 billion in it. But only $20 billion of that is going, supposedly, towards the border, and it's not towards securing the border either. It's going towards a bunch of organizations that are not, you know, that are going to help facilitate the illegal immigration, not stop it. So $20 billion to make the problem worse is what was being paraded in front of us as a win on the border for, for a whole week. $20 billion to make the problem worse and $98 billion to foreign countries is what was being sold to us by these snake oil salesmen as a win on the border. And they did it so shamelessly too, so shamelessly. Oh, and I and the second I saw how dishonest they were on this bill, I, I knew it was going to fall apart in their face. I, I knew I knew it was just a matter of time, and I'm I'm happy that it happened before, right before, like literally yesterday, as, as the time that I'm recording this, uh, all this sort of information dropped yesterday, and people were able to report on it today, and I've been able to catch up, and now I can talk to talk about it to you on the podcast today. I knew this was going to blow up. I knew it was going to be a, a total flop when I saw how dishonest they were being. And I'll, I'll get into sort of my my early speculation on this because I saw this one interview with this senator. I'll get into him uh, in just a minute. But this bill, $118 billion, $20 billion of it is going towards the border, but not to make things better, but to make it worse. Because it's not going towards building the wall. It's not going towards help more Border Patrol agents to kick people out of the country who enter in illegally, you know, enforcing the law. It's going towards helping the amnesty process and helping processing centers and, and helping all these, these organizations, these non-government organizations. And it's like, well, okay. How does that help? And for a week, everyone who was talking about border security was was sort of just painted as, oh, you're a hypocrite now. You're a hypocrite. You don't want you don't want to pass this bill uh, in a in a divided Congress. Oh, I'm uh, let, let's let's dig into this. Let's dig into this. Let's dig into this. Because <clears throat> it has 118 billion dollars. The 20 billion is, that's supposedly going to the border isn't going to help anything because it's not going to any of the right places and it's not going towards the right purposes. The bill is not making that happen. But the rest of the money is as follows. 17 billion to Israel, uh, 2.4 billion of that is going towards the Red Sea conflict. So it's not quite Israel. 
but 17 billion for Israel, basically, because the Red Sea conflict is being fought because of Israel, right? 10 billion for Gaza, all right? 60 billion for Ukraine. And then 5 billion goes to Taiwan and other East Asian countries. And then the rest is split up in a number of different ways. So that's 20 billion for us, 60 billion for Ukraine. Okay, that's 80 million. A million? Uh, billion. Uh, so that's 17 billion for Israel. Okay, so 17 plus 10 for Gaza and then plus 5 for East Asia. All right, so that's 20 uh, that's 22 plus 10 32 billion okay so that's so that's 80 billion plus 32 billion all right that's that's 112 billion so i guess with 6 billion despair to go towards a bunch of other different places wow what a waste of time what a waste of time now <laughs> And of course, apparently Mike Johnson, the supposedly America first speaker of the house, uh, he wants in a, a separate bill is as a separate thing, uh, a bill for, to provide 17 billion for Israel. And that's sort of the, the counter offer. We're, we're not going to have all your pork. We're only going to let the 17 billion for Israel slide because we're, we're reasonable. It's like, okay, what, what the hell ever, uh, I do not trust Mike Johnson. But at the very least, the politicking, the politicking that he's doing is at the very least useful in stopping this trash. But the existence of this bill and the opposition of many high profile Republicans to it has spawned criticism of the Republicans. And I brought up briefly a minute ago, namely that they're that they're hypocrites who want to use the border crisis to sabotage Biden's chances of reelection instead of doing what they claim is the right thing to do for this country, which is getting the border under control. Now, the people who said that hadn't read the bill and we were all going off of emotion and speculation because of what the bill, you know, the, the limited information we had about what was in the bill. Now the bill is out. But before the bill came out, there was this, this interview. <clears throat> from uh, Senator Lankford, that's his name. He was being interviewed, I believe it was on Fox, but I'm not entirely sure, but you could find this interview. Senator Lankford of Oklahoma was being interviewed. And <laughs> he he made a series of comments about the bill. And he was really trying to defend this. He was He was really trying to sell this to Americans as, look, everyone else is being so unreasonable. We have this bill. We, we're solving the crisis. We're going we're gonna to do this, that, and third. But these other, these people, they don't want to compromise. They don't want to make a deal. They just want to, they just want to grift off of this. And they, 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 they want to do what Trump says. And, and they, they're betraying the American people. They're allowing this crisis to go on for another day. All, all this, all this nonsense, right? <clears throat> and he says, and this is the information that I gathered off of this interview. He says that it would authorize the president to shut down the border and halt all asylum processes in the event that illegal border encounters cross the threshold of 5,000 people a day. And I've learned it would since then when you know when the information about the bill came out, I've learned that it would actually relocate the excess illegals into ports of entry instead of deporting them, so that they'd just be relocated. 
you know. Uh, so Senator Lankford <laughs> uh, was apparently censured by the Oklahoma legislature. And this was information that happened like shortly after that interview, like almost immediately he was censured by the Oklahoma legislature. They've essentially cut all ties with this, this man. They've disowned him, so to speak. And there's calls for him to resign. Uh, and and for good reason. And for good reason, because just going off of what he said in that interview, because there wasn't a lot of specifics in that interview, but I, there was that five thousand a day, five thousand a day. It would allow five thousand a day, and he 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 was really trying. Like you have to watch this interview. I I, I encourage you because I cannot do it justice, right? I cannot do it. You have to watch this interview to really get a, a grasp of just how badly he, he was trying to gaslight us. I, it's crazy. <coughs> but it, 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 good, good riddance for this guy, because if what he said was true, and it was, we found out later on, then just going off the information he provided, which again was verified later on in the week, that this bill, it, it was useless as an immigration reform. And I saw that just based off of what he said. It was useless. And it did virtually nothing to stop the crisis on the southern border. Now, you might ask, why do I think that? Wouldn't something be better than nothing? Especially in a divided Congress? You know, all these, all these, these little talking points that have been used to berate and browbeat people who want real border security for, the, for like the past week? My answer to that lies in the 5,000 number, which again has been confirmed to be a part of the, the bill, uh, but a little worse. Uh, I'll sort of dive into that in a minute. But again, just going off the information we had at the beginning of last week because of this interview with Senator Lankford, Senator James Lankford, the 5,000 number, which uh, by itself disqualified this from being any any real bill because the 5,000 number it, it, it says that you have to get to 5,000 a day in order to reach the threshold where Biden would supposedly have the authority to shut down the border and stop all asylum processes that's what he said so just going off of what he said right 5,000 a day was the threshold needed to give that authorization Ignoring whether or not Biden would actually do that and use the authorization, even if it was presented to him, which I have no, which we have no reason to believe he would do. He's, he undid Title Forty Two. He he let, allowed it to expire. Didn't fight for it. He got rid of Remain in Mexico. He got rid of safe third countries, where if you pass through another country uh, on your way to us, you couldn't apply for asylum here because you passed through safe countries. And Mexico qualifies as a safe country. For all the problems Mexico has, it is a safe country. If you're fleeing oppression, you can't walk through a, a perfectly good country just to get to us because you want because you want to be here. That's not how asylum works. He got rid of remain in Mexico. He got rid of safe third countries, and he reinstated catch and release, which is what the border patrol is doing down at the border. Which is why they're not allowed in Shelby Park right now because they're just gonna catch them and release them. It's insane. But so 
ignoring whether or not Biden would even use that authorization to shut down the border, which he, he made a big deal about how I could, I need the bill to pass so I can shut down the border. I can get under control. You could, you could have did that this entire time. It's, this is year four of your supposed presidency. This is year four. And you're just now talking about getting tough on the board. Hell no. Uh, but I'll digress. Obvious doubts. You, the, you know, you know how in, in law, when you're doing with a court case, it's supposed to be beyond reasonable doubt before you convict somebody. Yet we have a lot of reasonable doubt as to whether or not Biden would even use that authorization. But ignoring whether or not he would, ignoring that, if we just lock in on that 5,000 a day figure, we can immediately see the problem with this bill. Well, perhaps not immediately. Maybe maybe we have to do uh, just a little bit of math to see. Because people see 5,000, oh, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. Ah, but it's 5,000 a day. So, so my problem goes as follows. 5,000 illegal immigrants allowed to pass every day unmolested into the country multiplied by 365 days in a year totaling and other people were quick to point this out but you know uh, my my episode had just aired so i i couldn't you know i i couldn't beat the tide so to speak so i i but i did the math all right i did it before them believe me please but 5,000 day times 365 days in a year, that's 1.8 million illegal immigrants who would still be allowed into the country annually. At 1.1,825,000 to be exact. Who would be allowed in even with the authorization. I uh, I mentioned it briefly in last week's episode that about 6.2 6.2 million illegal immigrants came into the country. Uh, another number says that it was 9 million. Um, <clears throat> uh, actually, I should look that up. Let me Allow me to look that up. But I said in last week's episode that the number I saw was 6 million illegal immigrants, which would, you know, average this out to uh, 2 million a year because we're, you know, three years of Biden. So from 2 million illegal immigrants a year to 1.8 million. How does that help? How does that help anyone? What, what has this guy done? He hasn't done anything. And he's passing this off as this win, and the everyone who's against the bill is just being unreasonable. You went from two million a year to one point eight. Hello, look, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? This. Is, is he high <laughs> or is he just a liar? I think he's just a liar. Maybe both. We don't know. Okay. Well, the numbers I'm looking at right now say that it is, you know, between the different figures, uh, 
two, uh, an average of two million a year. So about six million. But I saw briefly a number that's saying it was nine, but I'm going to continue running with six million over the course of the three years of Biden. And two million a year to 1.8 million, and that's this massive win. If you don't stop it, just stop it. Like, if you're going to lie, then lie convincingly. But my goodness, you just look like an ass when the numbers come out, lying the way he did. It's, and I know they did the math. Oh, it's okay, because it's, uh, and, and here's a little, an extra little bit of information that came out since the bill was sort of revealed to us is so at 4,000 a day, uh, the Department of Homeland Security is able to exercise its own authority to sort of crack down on the border, right? Then there's the 5,000 a day that would uh, uh, allow Biden and the DHS to, you know, to do something. But then there's 8,000 <laughs> at 8,500 a day. Department of Homeland Security, the, the head of Department of Homeland Security, uh, Mayorkas, Alejandro Mayorkas, he would have the authority to act on the border. And it's like, excuse me? <laughs> excuse me? You have the ability to act on the border at eight and a half thousand a day? Not now? Department of Homeland Security, hello, you're being invaded? And you, you can't do anything about it now? Supposedly the president, hello, you, you can't do anything about it now. You need this You need this bill to pass to do anything about it, yeah? Borders are, hello? Hello? Uh, oh. Yeah, we'll, we'll get in touch with her later. <laughs> it, all of this. Because they don't want to do their job. And yet we're the bad people for saying well, you don't need this bill to do your job. Just do your job. We don't need to give money to Israel and to Ukraine and to this, that, and the third, and to Taiwan and uh, and and to Gaza. We we don't need to give money to the entire world to pass a border bill. This is this is insane. It's shit. It's retarded. <laughs> that, that's what it is. It's retarded, and they think that we're retarded because they they again, I encourage you to go watch that interview with Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma. I cannot do justice how badly that man tried to gaslight the American public. Oh, but this is what you were lying for? This is, look, if I'm gonna lie about something, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna at least lie about something I can defend. I'm gonna at least lie about something I can get behind. Is I'm gonna if I'm gonna lie about something, <laughs> I'm gonna lie about something that doesn't make me look like an ass when people find out I was lying about, it, right? What's good about this bill? Because he didn't say, oh, it's it's necessary to get aid to Ukraine. Oh, it's necessary to get aid to Israel. Like, you know, the, the typical we don't really give a damn about America response. No, it was, this is the border. This is it. This is it. We're going to secure the border with this bill. This 
If if you're not on board with this bill, you you're a you're a fake. You're a fraud. <laughs> you don't actually believe in border security. You're you're a, a Trump stooge and and a hypocrite. Now look at him. Now look at him. Censured by his own state legislature and for good fucking reason. This guy lied to protect this trash. <clears throat> To protect trash that did literally nothing on the border but make it worse. It does nothing on the border but make it worse. Two million a year to 1.8 million. It's like, okay, well, what have you done? Oh, we've reduced it by about 300,000 illegal because it's like 2.1 million, the average. We've reduced it by by 300,000 illegal immigrants a year. Oh, boy. Gee, I love 1.8 million illegal immigrants coming into the country every year. That Doesn't that sound reasonable, guys? It's not like legal immigration is a thing. It's like, what are we talking about? Get this guy out of here. <laughs> See, this is why senators need to be appointed by state legislature. This is why we got to get rid of the 17th Amendment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, if he if he resigns, the state legislature does get the power to appoint someone in his place, and we'd all be better off if they did. <clears throat> but it's like uh, I, I just I just I can't stress enough to you how much he and a lot of other people tried to pass this off as a as a win on the border. Like for, we we reduced the Im- the illegal immigration into this country from two point one million to one point eight million. And that's a win on the border that warrants giving $98 billion to other countries in the process. That's a win that the Republicans uh, and that the Republicans are, are, are too partisan and immature to take. Yeah, no, <laughs> this bill is trash. Uh, thank you, but no, thank you. And then <laughs> later on, we had more drama, more drama. Because you had Steve Scalise when the, when the bill dropped, right? When we were able to see what was in this 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 garbage heap, you had Steve Scalise, the House Majority Leader, taking to Twitter, <clears throat> saying this about the bill. He said, "Quote: Let me be clear, the Senate border bill will not receive a vote in the House." End quote. Good job. Thank you for doing your job. Don't let that don't let that trash in the door. Don't let that don't let that ruffian in this house tracking mud all over the floor. It doesn't deserve a vote on the house floor. It keep that shit out of here. Yes. There's no need for that. We do not need to be gaslit any more than we already have. There's do not even justify this with a vote on the house floor. It it's insane. It's insane. We're gonna allow, we're gonna legalize illegal two million illegal border crossings a year, and you're supposed to be happy with that. Get the fuck out of here. Now, Steve Scalise continued, and he's the House Majority Leader, not the Speaker of the House, but he's the House Majority Leader. He says, <laughs> he continues, quote, "Here's what people pushing this deal." aren't telling you 
It accepts 5,000 illegal immigrants a day and gives automatic work permits to asylum recipients, a magnet for illegal immigration, end quote. Automatic work permits for asylum recipients. Now, mind you, in order to properly apply for asylum, you have to do it at a port of entry. And remember, remember the bill doesn't deport these people when they get caught. They get re they get relocated to ports of entry where they can then apply for asylum. So see how this see where this is going. And then once they apply for asylum, they get automatic work permits. See? Isn't that great, guys? These people these people who cross the border illegally get to stay forever. <laughs> Isn't that great? Isn't that a win on the border? Isn't this border security? Like, <laughs> the, 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 the gall of these people, the brazenness of these people, they, they really thought they were just going to get away with this. And you know, and to be fair, they still might. I mean, let's, let's not give Congress too much credit until the job is done. And the job ain't done until this bill is dead. <clears throat> but they re they really thought they were just they they could just pull this shit right in front of us. They they didn't even try to pull a fast one. They're pulling a slow one right in front of you. You're like, yeah, fuck the border. We're just gonna give ninety eight billion dollars to other countries, and <laughs> we're gonna claim to deal with the border in the process. Win win. We get to claim to have done something about the border, and we get money to Ukraine and Israel. Isn't that great, guys? Isn't, guys, isn't that great? Come on, guys. <laughs> These people aren't well. <laughs> These people are not well. <coughs> they are not well. They, they have issues, to say the least. But put simply, this bill does not resolve the crisis at the border. It, it is actually attempting to legalize the crisis and make it a, a part of the process, so to speak. 1.8 illegal immigrants a year, shit, that's fine by me. Give them work permits. It's like, well, hold on now. Hold on now, they, they, they entered the country illegally. It was like, no, they're asylum seekers. It's like, uh, no, they passed through multiple countries that they could have claimed asylum in. Well, they're here now, so you have to deal with it. Isn't this a win on the border, guys? <laughs> they're trying to make this crisis a part of the process. They're trying to legitimize open borders. That's what this bill does. It legitimizes and de facto legalizes open border policy. That's what it, That's what it's attempting to do. And these people really tried to sell us on the idea that it was a win on border security. Like they, they, to give you an idea of just how retarded that is, it's like say it's like legalizing theft to say that you don't have a theft issue. Legalizing. If you legalize drug usage, 
and give people a safe place to shoot up drugs into their arms. <laughs> if you legalize the usage of the drugs, then you don't have an issue with drug abuse. If you legalize stealing from a store, then you don't have a, 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 a crime. You don't have a crime. It's not a crime. So therefore, you don't have to count it as being a problem. You legalize grand theft auto, you make it legal. So now you you suddenly don't have a problem with people stealing cars. It's not stealing. It's it's legal. It's not a, it's not a crime. It's not a problem because it's legal. Look, it's legal. That's what they're doing with the border. That's what they're doing with the border. Oh, we're gonna we're we're gonna we're gonna legalize doing crack. So we could say we don't have a crack problem. It's like, no, that's not how this works. It's still a problem. It's still illegal. <laughs> These people are not well. These people are not well. <laughs> and they, they, they talk a lot. There was a lot of talk about how Biden needs this bill to have the authority to do something on the border. How Mayorkas needs this bill to do something on the border. No one even bothers to talk about borders are. <laughs> Everyone knows she's worthless. But you, there's all this talk about what, what they need in order to do their job. It's like, no, you don't need this bill to do anything. You don't need this bill to do anything. Not that you would, even if it was passed. You don't want to do your job anyway. What has Mayorkas done? He had nothing. He's facilitated the problem. What has Biden done? <laughs> nothing. He's facilitated the problem. So why why it does any why should why should anyone believe that if this bill passes Biden's going to do a 180 on immigration and get tough on the border. He's going to he's going to shut the border down. Yeah? After you got rid of Title 42, after you got rid of Remain in Mexico, after you got rid of safe third countries, after you reinstated catch and release they think that we are slow. <laughs> they think that we are slow. And to be fair, a couple of us are. I mean, look, 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 don't, don't. This ain't a monolith, all right? This ain't a monolith. Some of us have common sense, and some of us fall for every scam the government has to offer us, you know? And you know who those people are, you know? But they really think we're slow. <laughs> And I'm so happy that the, the, the America First lobby, which is what I, I refer to the Demaga Republicans, I'm so happy the, the America First lobby is uh, at least promising not to let them get away with this uh, and standing behind Trump, uh, telling them not to go along with this bill. F forget what it looks like. Uh, this ain't it. And now that we know it's in the bill, we know that Trump was completely right to say that they shouldn't go along with this bill. And thank goodness he got ahead of this because some of them people probably would have gone along with this. Like, oh, it's a win on the border, guys. Come on, we got to do something. Ooh. And, and then there's the authority. Like, there's this, a lot of emphasis on how they need this authority in order to do something. But then I saw that the authority, the, the authority to crack down and, and shut the border down and you're not, it sunsets after three years with the duration of each crackdown authorization getting shorter every year until it does. The authorization is 
a maximum of 270 days in year one of the bill being exist being in existence that's 270 days for year one is the most that you can crack down on the border oh you oh that that's not too bad oh but then 225 days is the most you can crack down on the border during year two it's like uh well that's not as good but i suppose it's a, and then in year three it's 180 days and then nothing after that so this authority gets weaker over time and remember it can it can only be, be activated once you reach a threshold of four thousand a day for the department of homeland security to do anything about it it, it has to be five thousand before biden can do anything about it or or the president if you believe that guy is the president and then eight thousand five hundred for mayorkas to do something about it so it goes in tiers and then at every level it's completely at their discretion whether or not they want to use that that authorization it's not automatic right so again it's completely up to their discretion whether or not they even use this authorization but it's just so important to give them this authorization to give this authorization to people who don't want to use it we have to give biden needs the authorization from this bill to crack down on the border even though cracking down on the border is not something he's ever going to do so what does he need the authorization for forget the fact that he could crack down on it anyway with the powers he already has forget that mayorkas could do something about the border anyway with the power he already has forget the fact that they could just not fight texas on this issue not sue texas every time it tries to erect border walls remember when they tried to put up trump's border wall by themselves and the biden administration took the wall away and relocated it Remember how they've been fighting lawsuits against Texas the entire time? Not only have they been not enforcing the border, but they've been actively fighting Texas every step of the way. But we're supposed to believe now that if they just get this authorization that they're going to do something about it. They're going to lock the border down. They're going to shut it down. Like, get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. It's crazy. But another thing that this bill does is it also removes the immigration courts from the process of deciding who is and isn't eligible for asylum. <clears throat> Instead, allowing the US Citizenship and Immigration Services to decide that. Citizenship and Immigration Services who want more illegal immigration, who want more illegal immigrants. These people who don't want to do anything about the border are gonna be able to operate without the discretion of the courts and they're going to be able to decide unilaterally whether or not they're going to enforce the law there's no automatic enforcement mechanism it's complete there's tiers of activation based on the numbers coming across the border and at every level there's no automatic activation it's oh you can choose to use this authorization Oh, DHS can choose to use the authorization. Oh, Biden can choose to use the authorization. Oh, Mayorkas can choose to do something, can do choose to do something about the border. And now they here's this other thing again. They want to remove the immigration courts from the process of deciding who isn't isn't an asylum seeker. Well, who isn't isn't granted asylum to people 
who want everybody to be granted asylum. They're going to remove the courts from the process and allow bureaucrats to decide by themselves. Trash. This bill is trash. And these people have been trying to gaslight. It's all of its advocates. All the advocates of this bill have been trying to gaslight and browbeat us over this trash for a whole week just so they can launder more money to Ukraine. Just so they can launder more money to Israel and Taiwan. Like, like you have these goofy goobers like Chuck Schumer <laughs> talking about how if we don't pass this bill to get this aid to Ukraine, uh, we're going to have to go fight in Eastern Europe to go fight the Russians when we lose the war. We? Who the hell is we? Who who in the fuck is we? Because it ain't me. <laughs> I'm not at war with the Russians. I don't know who... I don't know who you're talking about. We ain't at war with anything. So wh whoever we are at war with, it ain't the Russians. So you can you can keep that shit to yourself. You're at war with the Russians, not me. So you you can put you can leave that we shit down. You put that we shit right back where you got it. We what we we like French or we like Nintendo? Because it ain't we as in you and me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> but. Folks, I've mentioned it a couple times before, what, what the real divide is between in, in America. It's not left and right, not really. Although it, it might look that way on the surface, but when you, when you dig beneath the surface, the divide is not left and right. Those are the superficial arguments. The real divides, the real tangible divides beyond this or that policy idea, the tangible divides in terms of ideology and where people really stand on the issues ultimately boils down to a very different kind of divide. Folks, you're watching a divide between the empire and the nation. And it's all about where one's loyalties lie. Does your loyalty lie, does your loyalty rest with America, the empire? Or does it rest with America, the nation? That's the choice, which will define the ballot in 2024. And that is the choice which defines this struggle that we see right before our eyes over the border, over this bill, the empire or the nation. $118 billion for the empire, nothing for the nation is what was in that bill versus building a wall to protect the nation versus we're not passing that bill for the empire because the nation is more important. Granted, Mike Johnson is still trying to pass $17 billion for Israel, but, you know, it's a start, right? It's a start. Texas is building a wall, not for the empire, because the empire's borders are not America's borders. Texas is building a wall on America's borders to protect America, the nation. 
and Americans are getting behind him. The imperialists are lining up in Washington behind this bill. And the divide over this bill is between imperialists and sovereigntists, if you don't want to use the word nationalist, although because a lot of them aren't necessarily nationalists, but they believe in America and they believe that America should be a sovereign nation. They believe that America is a sovereign nation and is not responsible for the world. A stark ideological uh, opposition to the imperialists who believe that the entire world is America's oyster and that we have obligations to other people. That is the divide in America today. Where do your loyalties lie? Do they lie with America the empire or America the nation? I think it's pretty obvious where my loyalties lie. Yeah, it's the American nation all the way. We'll be better off without that empire anyway. And that's the struggle that we see at every turn now. It was the struggle with the speakership before when they got rid of Kevin McCarthy. It was American the nation or America the empire. Because remember, he was ousted precisely over this same issue, funding foreign governments when there are problems at home. And what was the key problem at home? The border. And he was going to make a backroom deal with the Democrats to stab America in the back to support America. What do I mean? Amer stabbing America, the nation, in the back to protect America, the empire. That is the choice which defines this struggle. And thank God there are so many in power who have not forsaken their nation. God bless America and all those who stand up for her sovereignty. America forevermore. And that, my lovely listeners, is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing and the fight for our sovereignty is heating up. But no matter how the world changes, we will have fun watching those changes together. Now, I've been your host, Hajshan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.